Hi, my name's Lucy. I'm a junior and I'm a part of Chapel Street Students. I was kind of raised in the church. My family, we'd always identified as Christians, always believed in God, and I kind of just, for a long time, just like said I did, I never really knew what it meant or what Jesus dying on the cross actually meant or if it did anything for me. Life at that time was fine until about fourth grade. My dad had passed away, and that event of my dad passing was kind of the big, I guess you could say, road bump in my faith. Seventh and eighth grade of middle school, I was just living as like a normal middle schooler. I was going through a lot of insecurity issues. I was so sad and like just at such a horrible point in my life. With depression and anxiety, there would be days I just like couldn't look at myself in the mirror. Feeling of like looking at myself and like that person in the mirror is different than like the person that I actually am. You look at yourself and you hate yourself. Depression, I kind of think of it as like you're stuck in this box and you like yourself, you're trying everything to push yourself out of it. But no matter what you do, even if you put yourself, push yourself outside of that layer, there's another box right outside of it. Like it's a constant everyday ongoing battle. When quarantine had hit, that's when my depression, I felt like, was taking over every single part of my body. I couldn't control anything I was doing. It was just tears and anger every second of every day. I was at the point where, like, I just wanted it all to stop. I remember I was laying in bed. It was probably 2 or 3 in the morning, and I was just laying there with my thoughts, bawling my eyes out crying. Those bad thoughts were, like, hitting extra hard that night, and the thought of actually doing something to harm myself had never really been super big until that night. I had tried everything. I had gone to therapy, nothing was working. So I prayed to God and I was just like, I don't even know if you're real or what's going on, but like this is like my last chance. Like this is my last shot. And if this doesn't work, then I just don't think that like I'm meant to be here anymore. I just remember like just laying there after I had done praying and I just felt this random like wave of like calmness come over me. With dealing with depression, anxiety, I always have like this heavy pit in my stomach that like something bad's gonna happen. And I remember for the first time in months, like that feeling that was in my stomach and my chest it had just like been like lifted off of me. Ever since coming to Chapel Street, my entire life has changed. Obviously, God has changed my life, but I prayed for so long to have that community of people. I can come to these people with any issue, and I'm not gonna feel judged by it, and I'm not gonna feel like my feelings are invalidated. And being here for the two hours every night on Sunday night for D Group, it's like my escape in a way. It's kind of like, yeah, I have school tomorrow, but like it's Sunday, I get to go see the people that God has blessed me with. And then I decided this summer to take the next step into getting baptized during the stadium service. Just standing there like after I'd been baptized and standing there with some of my best friends, this wave of emotion coming after me because I was like, if you didn't have God, Lucy, like, you wouldn't be standing here right now. Like, you wouldn't be here right now. 
God has done a lot in my life the past almost two years since I have God in my life and I have opened up his word and I've read who he has made me to be, that I was knit together in my mother's womb, that he created me for a purpose, all of that trumps every other bad thought that I have. When you give your life to God, life is not gonna be all daisies and rainbows and nowhere in the Bible does God promise that. But what he does promise is when you go through those valleys and those low parts and those parts where you feel like, I don't wanna be here anymore, He's the one that's there. There is just no doubt in my mind that God isn't real. If he can pick me up from the point I was at, we're literally about to end my life. I know that he can do that same exact thing for absolutely anybody. Can we just take a moment? Let's praise God for what he did in Lucy's life. Let's just. So thankful for, uh, for her story, for her willingness to share. Share something um, of a battle that so many of us have faced, or, or maybe you know someone who's faced a similar battle, and yet God was greater. We're so thankful for that. Let's pray as we open up his word. Uh, Heavenly Father, God, as we come to you now to um, just hear you speak to us, Lord, we just praise you for your power and your goodness in the life of Lucy, a, a daughter of you. Lord, we know um, that, that you are good. Lord, we know that you are here. And Lord, we also know that for many of us, we're experiencing our own battles, the own, our own things that, that feel too big and too powerful, things that we can't handle. And so, Father, as we come to your word, I just ask that you would just give us a sense of that calm that she even mentioned. Lord, give us your peace. Give us a sense of encouragement that you are here, that you have not abandoned us, that you are with us now. Speak to us through the power of your word. Amen. Uh, well, as uh, many of you know, uh, my wife Judy and I recently became parents. Uh, in fact, our son Luca is four months old now, which is uh, hard to believe, but, but he's doing great. He's, he's growing and he's healthy and he loves his mom and nobody else. It's awesome. Um, it's good for the old ego. Uh, but, but recently I was reflecting back on the time where, where she was pregnant. We knew that, that he was coming, um, and, and just kind of of that time, maybe if you're a parent, you remember that time in your life of, of just overwhelming excitement, and at the same time, just crippling fear. I remember just having those two things go hand in hand together of, you know, this is going to be so great, I'm so looking forward to this, and yet at the same time, there are so many questions that I have. There are so many things that I just feel so unprepared to deal with. And so, I don't know what you did if you were in that situation, but for me, I tried to find the answer to that question. In fact, I'll show you what I went to. Um, here we, this isn't even all of them. Hang on. So, I, I started buying, you should see my Amazon history. It was crazy. I just bought so many books, and I started reading these, and I remember just sitting there, just reading and afraid, just thinking, you know, maybe this, this book will have the answer to calm my fears. Maybe this will tell me what I need to know in order to be a good dad to this baby. And so at some point, it got, to the, the po it got to the place where there was just too much information. You ever get to that place with something where it's like, I'm going to read everything there is, and then it's like, I can't absorb any of it. 
And so I remember after he was born, sharing this feeling with one of our nurses and, and saying, like, I just don't know what to do. Help me understand how to be a good parent. And she told me there were only three things that I needed to worry about. That if we could feed him, change him, and get him to sleep, we'll be fine. <laughs> and that was just so freeing to me to hear that. For someone to take, you know, all of these things, all of this advice and all of the schedules and all of the, the milestones and all the things that we need to be worried about and to condense that into three simple commands. Simple, but not easy, unfortunately. But today, as we continue our exploration of the book of Mark, that is exactly what we're going to see Jesus do when it comes to following the king. If you've been with us in this series, we've been following Jesus' life and his ministry, and at this point he has arrived at Jerusalem and he isn't going to leave before the death on the cross. This is the last week of his life. And so we're in the midst of a conversation, in fact, a series of conversations that Jesus is having. We looked at one just last week where over and over these religious leaders would come up to Jesus and they would ask him these questions. They're trying to trap him, to trick him, to get him to say something wrong so that the people that, were, that, he, uh, that he was so popular with, that were following him and believing what he was saying, that they would turn against him so that they could finally get rid of him. And each time we're told that he answers these questions in such a way that they are left in awe. That brings us to the story that we're going to be looking at today found in Mark chapter 12. And so if you have a Bible with you on your phone or the physical version, go ahead and turn there with me now. We're told that as these conversations are happening, there is a particular scribe, this expert in the law, who comes to Jesus. And he asks him a question similar to the one that I asked that nurse that day. There's so many things that we can be doing when it comes to our faith. Doesn't it feel like you, you hear all of these things that we're supposed to be doing and these things that we're not supposed to be doing, and there's all these rules and regulations. There's so many religious activities that we could be doing. What is it that matters most? Can you condense this down into something that I can remember, something that I can take with me? In other words, what is the essence of what it means to follow the king? Let's look to Mark chapter 12 as we see uh, Jesus' response, a response that I'm guessing will be familiar to some of us. Mark chapter 12, we'll start in verse 28 today. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher, you have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And then Jesus, when Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. So this, according to Jesus, is what matters most. This is how you summarize the entire law, all of what we call the Old Testament. To love God with all that is within you, and to love your neighbor as yourself. 
This is what it means to live a life that is faithful to God, that if you should do anything, you should do these two things. So, today, let's break down this conversation as we look at it and see how it can impact the way that we live our lives. Let's start with the right question. The right question. Uh, Look again briefly with me to verse uh, 28. It says, One of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, Which commandment? is the most important of all. I don't know what it is about us as uh, people, but we love talking about greatness, don't we? We love having these debates. We love having these discussions about who is the best, which is the greatest, which is the most impressive. I think that we're drawn to greatness. This is why the Super Bowl is the most watched TV show every year. The two best teams in the most popular sport battling it out. Plus the commercials, those are good too. But we love having these debates, don't we? What is the best movie of all time? Which is your favorite TV show? In the Scavato House, one of our ongoing debates is, which is the best place to get some fried chicken around here? Is it Raising Cane's or Chick-fil-A? The correct answer? Raising Cane's, correct. I'm saying one of them is open today, the other one's not. All right, let's keep moving. We got to keep moving. Uh, Those in the sports world, though, discuss who the greatest basketball player is. And for some reason, people say anyone besides Michael Jordan. I don't get that. Others will say, uh, who is the greatest U.S. president? Who is the most effective at leading our country? Washington, Lincoln, somebody else? We have award shows to decide who is the best musician, the best actor, the best movie of that particular year. We love discussing greatness. This, of course, is not unique to our time or our society. It happened back in Jesus' day as well. And on this day in particular, in which this conversation took place, someone wanted Jesus to chime in. Which commandment is the most important of all? This is the question, the right question that this scribe asked of Jesus. It had been an ongoing debate among scholars and and experts who studied the law ever since they had received it in what we call the Old Testament, what Jesus simply would have called the Scriptures. Some of you know this, but when God gave the Ten Commandments, he didn't stop there. In fact, there were a total of 613 laws that a faithful Jewish person would be expected to keep. Now, 613 is a lot of laws, and so what would happen is that they would try to decide which ones were most important and which ones were kind of least important, which ones you absolutely had to follow and which ones you only had to feel a little bit guilty about. And it was all kind of based on what kind of punishment God would give if you broke it. And so this debate began that we have to decide which one is the very most important, what command rises above all the others. This is the question that is brought to Jesus that day by this scribe, this this teacher, this expert in the law, someone who had studied it his entire life. Now, we don't know much about this man. We don't know if he was trying to trap Jesus or if he really wanted to hear the answer, or maybe it was a little bit of both. But it's clear to us one thing that he recognized that there was something different about this Jesus. That this man, this teacher, had a a wisdom about him, a knowledge that he was drawn to, even if he didn't buy into everything that he was saying. There was something about this Jesus that maybe he had the answer to the questions of life. The truth is there are people in your life and in mine that kind of feel the same way today. Maybe there are people even in this room that feel that way, that we're not sure we buy into all of this stuff. 
We're not sure about church, and we're not sure about organized religion, and we're not sure about all these Christians, but there's something about this Jesus that's so compelling. There's something about his message, something that's so beautiful and so fulfilling, something that just doesn't make sense when people say it was all made up by some tax collectors and fishermen. Maybe he has the answer. There are people like Lucy, whose story we just heard, stuck in a battle with anxiety and depression, not even sure if God is real, but crying out and saying, if you are, maybe you have the answer. I've tried everything. There are people all over the world and all over your world that are looking for the answers to the questions of life, wondering if this Jesus is any different. And this is the beauty of who Jesus is, that he welcomes those questions with open arms. He knows that there's no better place for someone who is confused or questioning their faith or unsure about their life than where this scribe is that day. Face to face, looking at the one who not only has the answer, but is the answer. This is what our scribe does. He asks the right question, which is the most important commandment? And Jesus responds with these famous words. We're going to look at them more in depth in just a moment. Love God and love your neighbor. Before we look at that, though, look with me to how the scribe responds. Let's go to verse uh, 32 and 33. The scribe responds to Jesus and says, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, that there is no other besides him, and to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Now, don't miss this. This is so important that we get this, that the scribe is standing there that day in the temple, the place where people would go to give those sacrifices and make those offerings. This is where their entire religious system was built that was designed to make them right with God, and more than all of that, the scribe is saying, more important than all of those things is love. More important than sacrifice, more important than ritual, more important than tradition is love of God and love of neighbor. This is a life-altering statement that he makes. That our faith is more than simply religious tradition and ritual and more than just a way to be morally pure and more than just a system of good deeds. More than all of that, there is something that God desires more. Love. This is a pattern that we see actually throughout all of Scripture. Um, let me just point out a few examples, but there are many more that I could show to you. The first is found in Amos chapter 5. In Amos chapter 5, it's being written to a nation that um, had lost their love of neighbor and of God, but continued to make these sacrifices a way to kind of cover up for their misdeeds. It says in verse 21, this is God speaking, I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Let's go to uh, Psalm chapter 51. This is David speaking. He says, You will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. More than offering, what does God want? He wants our heart. We see this too in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the love chapter, the chapter that defines love in the eyes of God. It begins this way. 
If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Do you catch that? To be a Christ follower, to be a follower of the king is not simply about ritual and not simply about doing the right things. There's a a funny thing that happens to me sometimes when I'm out in the world and and, uh, someone asks what I do for a living. I tell them I'm a pastor. Uh, and, And so often when I say I'm a pastor, the first thing that they tell me is their closest connection to church. They say, oh, I grew up going to mass. Or, you know, my kids go to church uh, with their mom, or, or I was baptized as a kid. It's like six degrees of separation combined with Catholic guilt. It's great. <laughs> but they say this, it, it, my guess is, is so that I, as a pastor, don't tell them that they're like a bad person, as if I have any moral ground to do that. But I think we do this too sometimes in our faith if we're not careful. I think it's easy for us to fall into this trap of thinking that more than anything, God wants us to not be bad people. He wants us to fill out this checklist of going to church and giving our money and and showing good behavior. Friends, the great commandment is not be a pretty good person. It is not give 10% of your money to the church. There is something that God wants more than sacrifices and offerings. Release yourself today from the type of Christianity that is marked by guilt and shame and pressure to be enough. Recognize what David and Amos and Paul and Jesus himself say over and over again. That you can have all the credentials in the world. There's something that matters more. There's something that he looks to instead. That leads us to the way that Jesus responds to this right question uh, with the right answer. Um, Valentine's Day was almost a, a week ago. Um, I've shared before with, with you guys, I believe, the gap between the type of gift giver that I am versus the gift giver that my wife is. Um, and so Valentine's Day is my chance to kind of make up the gap, but it probably won't surprise you that for years I did what, what most guys do, I think, you know, buy some, uh, some flowers and that little heart box of chocolate and call it a day. Um, and so most of the time, you know, Judy was very kind and appreciative, and so it went fine. But, but one year in particular, uh, she came to me and she told me that she did not love flowers as much as I thought that she did. In fact, they made her kind of sad because they would die so quickly. And so she actually prefers those little potted plants instead. And then she said, I actually don't like those, those chocolates as much as you think I do. I don't really love the taste. But what I do love are Oreos. Who doesn't? And so that's our new Valentine's Day tradition where I get her a little potted plant and some Oreos. And it's great because then I get Oreos too. So it's a (laughs) win-win. But imagine if she told me all of those things and I continued to get her flowers and chocolates. You could say correctly that I'm not using the knowledge of my wife in the way that I show her love. And love should always be shaped by knowledge. Hold on to that because that brings us to what Jesus tells this scribe. This is verse 29. Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
There is no other commandment greater than these. So this is Jesus' response to this question with an answer that is central to what the Christian life is all about. In other words, of all the 613 laws that were given, this is what matters most. To love God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your strength. That language repeated with all of you, with all of you, with all of you, to show us that point. That our love is not to be simply with part of who we are, but we are to be wholly committed to him. Jesus is quoting from uh, the Old Testament law. In fact, we see it in Deuteronomy chapter 6. This is something that the Jewish people would call the Shema. Shema is the Hebrew word for hear. In fact, you can see that in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. The Jewish people took this uh, so seriously that they would repeat the Shema twice a day out loud every single day. They would memorize it. It was on their hearts that, that God is the only one worth following, the only one worth loving, the only one worth obeying. And so every single person that Jesus was speaking to that day would have memorized this verse by the time they were a child. And so they would have noticed that Jesus changed it. Did you catch what he did? Did you catch what he added instead, that we are to love God, not just with our heart, meaning our inner self and our intentions and our will, not just with our spirit, the, the thing that, is, uh, that defines us, the spirit that lives in us that will live forever even after we're gone, and not just with our strength, our physical energy, our might, our power, but also with our minds, with our knowledge, our intellect, our understanding. In other words, just like it is with me on Valentine's Day, our love of God should be shaped by the knowledge of God. We see this in the verse that Jesus quotes uh, in Deuteronomy. After he says these things that we just saw, he continues in verse 6. He says, And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hands, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Maybe today, for you and for me, this is what it looks like to grow in our love of God. Maybe we need to grow in our knowledge of who he is and of his word. Growing in who in the knowledge of his word and and memorizing it and putting it on our heart and on our mind and on our house. To let our love for him not just be defined by emotion and not just by feeling and not just by past knowledge that we've learned, but in a never-ending pursuit of who he is, of continuing to know more about him. The only way that you learn more about God is by spending time with him and listening to what he has to say. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This would be, by the way, a a well-received answer to the people that he was speaking to. People would generally agree that that is one of the most important commands. Uh, It was a pretty solid answer, but Jesus was not done yet. He had more to say. This is what he says. Look with me to verse uh, 31. He says, the second is this. You shall love your neighbor 
as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Again, Jesus is quoting from the Old Testament law, this time in Leviticus 19, verse 18. It says, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So he's quoting this, and this is what's so fascinating to me. That at first glance, it seems like Jesus is cheating a little bit, doesn't it? The guy asked for one commandment, not two. Why did he do that? What was he thinking? I don't think he was being indecisive. I don't think he was trying to skirt the rules. In fact, I think he was trying to intentionally show us something new. He's saying, I can't just pick one because from this day forward, these two laws have been fused together. They go together now, and from this day forward, it is impossible to love God without loving your neighbor. They are bound together, two sides of the same coin. In Luke's gospel, Jesus is teaching these commands, and someone asks a question uh, that we must be able to answer as well. He asks him, who is my neighbor? Jesus tells a, a parable, as he so often does. He tells the story of a man who was beaten up and left for dead on the side of a road. And he's lying there, and as he is, two religious leaders walk up, and they see him, and what do they do? They keep walking on the other side of the road, unwilling to care for their neighbor. And then who shows up but a Samaritan? And for a Jewish person, a Samaritan is like that coworker that you try to avoid, and that family member that you hope doesn't show up to Thanksgiving, and that person who's always posting that crazy stuff on Facebook. All of those things all rolled into one. And yet, what does that Samaritan do? He sees this man. He stops. He has compassion, and he cares for him. His love compels him to see not an enemy, but a friend. Jesus tells that story, and he asks, who was the neighbor to that man? The Samaritan, of course. Then he says something that should change the way that you and I live our lives. He says, you go and do likewise. You go and do likewise. You go and show compassion to the person in your life who is hurting and broken today. You go and start seeing people not as problems, but as precious in the sight of God. You go and remember that all the knowledge of God that those religious leaders had was useless because it did not compel them to love their neighbor. Go and show mercy and forgiveness to those who you might consider an enemy. Go and love your neighbor, which this story teaches is anyone that God cares about, anyone in your life, anyone in mine. Go and care for others. Why? Because you remember that you too were once that man laying on the side of the road that you were left for dead, broken by the weight of your sin, and that God sent his son to bind up your wounds, to heal your brokenness, to not just pay the debt of your sin, but to adopt you into his own family and make you an heir of everything that is his. See, there's a reason why this story resonates with people 2,000 years after it was told. There's a reason that even the people in your life that want nothing to do with church knows what it means to be a good Samaritan. There's a reason why this kind of love, love that is active and not just a feeling, love that is selfless and sacrificial, love that bears and believes and hopes and endures all things, 
there's a reason why this kind of love has a grip on people, even those who don't know God. Because this kind of love changed the world. This kind of love compelled the God of the universe to send his son, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. This kind of love compelled that son to die on the cross for you and for me, even when we were still sinners. This kind of love compelled his first followers to care not just about the powerful and the wealthy, but the poor and the needy, to elevate the role of women, to care for infants that were left to die, to give to widows and orphans. This kind of love, against all odds, outlasted the Roman Empire that tried to destroy it. This kind of love has changed the world over and over again. And friends, the world needs the church to do that again. The world is looking for this kind of love, and it needs a church that is sold out with all of our hearts and our minds and our souls and our strength in their love for God and their love of neighbor. Your neighbors need you. Your friends, your family need you. We need you. This is the great commandment. It is not the great suggestion. It is not the great recommendation. This is what it means to follow the king. Finally, and we'll go quick with this, let's look at the final piece of this conversation, the right invitation. The right invitation. This is verse 34. Um, When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions because he kept showing them up. You are not far from the kingdom of God. What does that mean? Why would, why would Jesus say that? Uh, back in the uh, 1700s, there was a preacher named John Wesley. Uh, he and his brother Charles started what became the Methodist Church Movement. And for much of his life, Wesley believed that he could do enough good things to earn his salvation. That he, if he knew enough about God, if he served enough people, if he was a good enough person, then he would finally be good enough to be saved. And so he literally became a pastor and a missionary preaching the good news that he had yet to receive. And it absolutely wrecked him. Until one day, he opened his Bible to this exact verse, to these words, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And it changed his life. See, like this scribe, Wesley was a religious person. He had all the right answers. He knew all the right things. He served and obeyed God. He was close to the kingdom, but he wasn't quite there. See, it's possible that some of us here today, we consider ourselves part of God's kingdom simply because we go to church. Maybe we consider ourselves part of God's kingdom because we know a lot of answers. We do the right things. We consider ourselves pretty good people. It's possible that some of us believe the same thing that Wesley did, that we can earn our salvation. But what does Jesus say? He says, you're close, but you're not quite there. Can you imagine how the scribe must have responded to that? I mean, this is a a religious leader that he was educated and he was respected. This is a good person. He's someone who saw the wisdom of Jesus. He agreed with the answer to what matters most. And he's saying, you're right there. You're right on the edge. You're on the border, but there's one thing that you're missing. I think back to what that nurse told me. Being a dad meant doing those three things. 
And in many ways, she was right. Most of our time with our son has either been feeding him or changing him or trying to get him to sleep. And boy, that boy loves being awake. He loves it. It's his favorite thing. But the truth is, in theory, anyone could do those three things. In fact, that same day that she said that, that nurse did all three of those things, and she did it better than I ever could. See, I think the thing that makes me his dad, the thing that makes us a family, is not the things that I do for him. It's the love that I have for him. What makes you a part of the kingdom of God is not the things that you do for him. It is the love that he has for you. It is the love that you share as a family. Maybe today it's time to receive that love for the first time. Maybe it's time today for you to be reminded of it, to remember what it means to be part of the kingdom and what it means to follow the king. To remember that your place in the kingdom is not one that you have earned. It's not one that you deserved. It's not one that you can buy with anything that we have to offer. It is entered into by faith. Faith that he is enough and that his love is sufficient. Let's live by that faith today. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, today we praise you for the love that you have given us. God, we are grateful. God, we are undeserving. And yet we see your goodness each and every day. Father, today I would ask that you would give us your power, that you would give us your spirit in the way that we love you and in the way that we love our neighbors. God, help us to see what it means to faithfully follow you today and every day of our lives. Amen.